You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Our passage from today is from John 16, starting in verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. Uh, go ahead, yeah, and take your Bibles out and go to John 16 if you haven't yet. I'm going to go ahead and get us started with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would send us your comfort by the Spirit, that these words of truth that are spoken through your Son, that his friends would be spoken to us today, that we'd receive them, be encouraged by them, and strengthened by them. And Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified this morning, that your name would be lifted high above all other names that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we we claps onto you and ask that you teach us, be with us. In your name we pray, amen. So on May 7th, 1945, Hitler's successor, Karl Donitz, signed an unconditional surrender to the United States. And then months later, Japan's emperor in his first ever radio broadcast also announced surrender. And when that agreement was signed, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur told the world in his radio broadcast, today, the guns are silent. A great tragedy has ended. A great victory has been won. It is a great day for the Allies. But at the same time, it was a terrible day for the Axis powers. It is possible for one event, one singular event, to be wonderful for one group of people and to be a terrible thing for another group of people. And that's what Jesus is teaching today, that he is sending the Holy Spirit in his place, that as Jesus ascends and goes to the Father and sends his Spirit in his stead, for those who are followers of Jesus, it is a comfort. He is a comfort. This is a wonderful, amazing thing for us. But at the same time, the Spirit being sent into the world to bear witness of Christ to the world, he haunts them. He convicts them. He exposes them. So all at the same time, the Spirit of God The Spirit of Jesus is sent to comfort us, but also convict the world. If you're looking for a main idea for today to walk out here with, just what this passage is saying, what to equip yourself with, it's this. The Spirit is sent to comfort and convict. And whoever you are, where you stand with Jesus, will determine whether you're comforted by him or convicted by him. So let's get started first with the Spirit is sent to comfort and understand this. So remember, this whole entire teaching called the Final Discourse, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, It's Jesus making his very intentional effort to prepare his disciples to prepare us for life without him. 
He is going to die. He's going to resurrect. He's going to ascend to the Father, and we will be without his bodily presence. And he is making every intentional effort here to prepare his friends because he doesn't want them to be stunned by what's going to take place after he leaves. He's just told them, like just told them that he's going to die. But also that that same opposition that he faced in the world, they will also face now. They will face difficulties. He has just told them that. Look at verse 4. I'll read it to you. It says this. But I have said these, this is Jesus talking, I have said these things to you, apostles, that when their hour, the world's hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you, these things, these sayings, these warnings. So when the world is winning, when the world is opposing fiercely, just remember everything I've told you. And he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. There was no reason to worry. There was no reason to be stunned. There was no reason to be shell-shocked when Jesus was with them. But when he leaves, there will be great potential to be stunned. And so he wants to warn them and prepare them for his absence by telling them these things and by preparing them for his absence. Now, I just want to take a moment to kind of settle into the moment here in the story. You have to remember, Jesus is making his way to the Roman cross. And the Roman cross is physically horrendous, emotionally horrendous, socially horrendous, psychologically. It's a, it's a horrendous experience. And yet here is Jesus on the brink of that excruciating experience. And where's his mind at? Where is his, who, who has his heart right now? What's he thinking about? Not himself. He's not concerned about himself. His heart surges out to his friends. Who's on his mind is his friends. You remember what Jesus does on the cross? He looks at his mother, Mary, and says, Mother, this is your son, pointing to his beloved disciple, John. And, and, and John, this is your mother. Like, to his last final breath, this is the heart of Jesus. Not self-concerned, but concerned for others, concerned for his friends, concerned for you and I. This is the heart of Jesus. This is where his drift, mind drifts to in this moment. And so I just want to say, he has real concern for us, real affection for us. He actually really cares about us. It's not just things we tell ourselves because this is the story of her growing up. Jesus, in this very human moment, it would make total sense for him to be concerned about himself, but his mind and his heart are with his friends. But, and this is understandable, no matter what Jesus says, he takes every effort here to prepare his disciples. They're still overcome with grief. Look at verses four and five, five and six, excuse me. He says this. Now I'm going to him, to the Father who sent me. And none of you asks me where I am going. Why? Like going to the Father, that's amazing. Returning to the heavenly glory, that's amazing. They should be happy for him, right? That's what he's sort of implying. But then he says, the reason why. Uh, he says this, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow, a deep, overwhelming grief. And Luke, uh, elsewhere in 22, Luke 22, 44, 45 and 46, Jesus says this. Luke records this. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. That's the same word in the Greek, sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, there's a kind of sorrow, a kind of grief that literally incapacitates you. I mean, there have been times in my life where I've been so disappointed, so overcome with grief, that I just wanted to sleep. 
that I just wanted to lay in bed and not think and not do anything. I'm sure many of you have had these experiences too. It's not uncommon to the human existence to be overwhelmed at this kind of sorrow, soul sorrow, soul level sorrow. And that's what's percolating in these friends' hearts right now. The thought of this, of their friend and their teacher, the most tremendous person they've ever known, who they've invested all of their hope and trust in, that at his words telling them, I'm going to be gone. I am leaving. What's beginning to happen in their heart is this overwhelming sorrow. I mean, think about it. They've, they've given up everything to follow this man. They've given up their careers. They've given up their, in many ways, the comforts of their lives to follow him and invest everything into him. And think about this too. They thought that Jesus would be the savior of Israel, right? That he would come and establish this earthly kingdom with earthly power and and they would live in comfort and ease and splendor the rest of their days with him, their friend and teacher as king of this new dynasty. That's what they've been thinking this whole time. And what they're hearing now is, nope, (laughs) you know, what you've been expecting this whole time and hoping for this whole time, it's not going to be reality. That's not what's going to happen. And so there's a deep anguish, a deep sorrow, and a kind of sorrow that literally will incapacitate a person. But look what Jesus says to sorrowful hearts in verse 7. This is Jesus in a very human moment, concerned for his friends. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that means get ready to hear something unbelievable. And what's more unbelievable than it's better that I'm not here. It's better that I depart because if I, if I don't depart, I can't send the spirit. And you might think to yourself, as I think to myself, how is that better? How would it be better to have Jesus' absence and in his place the Spirit himself? Why would that be better? And even more, why would that give us so much comfort? I mean, Jesus is addressing sorrowful hearts. Why would this establish in our hearts comfort? Two reasons. Two reasons. Listen up. First, because when Jesus dies and when Jesus rises again, and then when he ascends and returns to the Father, his work is finished. His salvation is accomplished. But it's only by ascending back to the Father that his work is final. But when he ascends to the Father, he sends us his Spirit. So the Spirit can do what then? What can then the Spirit do with this reality that Jesus is absent and at the right hand of the Father? The Spirit can now apply to our hearts the finished victorious, sufficient work of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's why it's better that Jesus departs and he sends us the Spirit. So the Spirit now can to the deepest parts of our being apply the benefits and promises and truths of the gospel that no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, God will always love you. That God always keeps his promises that although you feel alone and isolated and unloved right now, the Spirit whispers to your heart, look back to the cross. Son, daughter, look back to the cross. I've always loved you. I will always love you. And that, that can only happen on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, which means he must not only die and resurrect, but he must also ascend and be absent. 
then the Spirit comes and takes all of the benefits of the gospel and reassures our hearts with them. The second reason why it's better that Jesus is part so he can send the Spirit is because the Spirit comes to be the presence of Jesus in our bodies, in our being. Now think about this. Jesus was in one local place. I mean, he was incarnated. He was in Galilee. He was in Nazareth. He was in Palestine. If you want to meet Jesus, if you want to be around Jesus, you would have to go and be in his literal physical presence. But now he has departed and sends us his spirit on his behalf. That means what you'd want, right? To be in the presence of Jesus, to know him, to draw near him. You don't have to go to Palestine to do that. You don't have to find where he's at somewhere on the globe. He is within you now. I mean, we, we take this for granted. We need to think about this and appreciate the literal reality that is the Spirit sent in Jesus' place. We have the very presence of Jesus abiding in us, making his home in us. The very experience that the disciples were privileged to have for three straight years walking with Jesus through life We all who have called upon the name of Jesus have that now every single day of our lives. We don't need to go anywhere to do that. He has come to us. It's better that we have the Spirit. It's better that Jesus has departed. This is why the New Testament calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus in Philippians 1, the Spirit of His Son in Galatians 4, the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9. It's because the Spirit is sent from Jesus, from the Father and the Son. He proceeds. He goes forward. Now, the Spirit and Jesus, they're not the same person, but there is such an inextricable relationship between them that when the Spirit proceeds forth from the Son to do the Son's will, it can be said that we are indwelt by Jesus himself because the Spirit is the Son's emissary. It's as if Jesus is with us, the very presence of God in us. Now, this is, this is the longings of all of the Old Testament. This is the story of the entire Old Testament. It starts in the garden where the first human pair, Adam and Eve, enjoyed the rich, un, you know, unfiltered presence of God. Fall occurs, sin occurs, that relationship is fragmented and broken, but God begins to make his way back to our presence, back to that kind of relationship with us through the tent of meetings, you know, Moses meeting in a tent that we broken down and set up as they travel through the wilderness, that eventually David builds the temple in one location where Israel would go and meet with God and be in his presence. And then it gets even better because Jesus, the very presence of God, incarnates amongst us, is walking with us on earth. But now we have something even better, right? The, the gap is closing over time and we now have the very presence of Jesus, like the Edenic presence of God inhabiting our bodies. And so you... Come back to the disciples. Like, what were they hoping for out of this whole thing? What, were they, what, what made them so sorrowful? Because they had this image of the good life, that they'd have this earthly kingdom full of ease and comfort, and everything would go their way. They'd have power. They'd have comfort. It would be awesome. What's better than that? What's better than a life of just everything going your way? <laughs> What's better is life in the Spirit, apparently. What's better is the very presence of God living within us, speaking to us God's promises, reassuring us of God's love for us, and going with us wherever we go. 
You know, when you read about like the kingdom of God, that Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God, you read that through all the Gospels. He comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1 and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. We hear this idea of this theology of the kingdom of God. We're so far removed from that time. We're viewing the Bible with Western lenses usually, and we don't really know how to understand that language. But when Jesus is saying, uh, repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand, what, what all us original hearers and readers would be imagining is a king's um, troop, his platoon, marching into a city that he's just taken and announcing a gospel, uh, uh, making a royal announcement. And usually the announcement would go something like this. Uh, the, the king of Greece has come to take over this territory. You're going to have his customs now, his language now. Everything you once had is gone. It's a complete just imperialistic move. But Jesus is saying what? His kingdom is different. What's his announcement as he, comes, as he comes to our lives and invites us to live in his kingdom? He's saying, I'm not, I'm not coming to, with imperialistic force, I'm coming to die for you. I'm coming to forgive you. I'm coming to, to give you acceptance, to bring you to the Father. This is life in the kingdom. Not a cruel king, not a distant king, but a king who is actually with us and wants to comfort us in our sorrow. So let's just take a moment and appreciate this. Jesus is with us through his spirit. Wherever we go, so does he. We live before God. We live connected to the vine. We live with constant access to Jesus. There are only two times, we're talking about the Holy Spirit right now, there are only two times in the Bible where we are given directly what the Spirit prays. And it's always in partnership with us, like as our soul has longings, as our souls lift up, you know, groans to God, the Spirit always participates in that. Here's what he prays. In Revelation 22, it says, the bride, that's you and I, and the Spirit say, come. Meaning, come, Lord Jesus, draw near, be with me. I'm alone. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I need your presence. I need your love. We're also told one other instance of the Spirit's prayer in Romans chapter 8, that we, re- we receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out together with the Spirit, Abba, Father, Dad. I need you to be my dad. I need you to draw near. I need you, I need you to be that safe presence for me as a father would be. And what does Jesus say? It's better that I go so the Spirit can come. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Every longing in our heart for the nearness of God, he answers with a yes through his spirit. I remember um, seeing a video of a father who opened up like um, a package from his son, his late son, who was killed during his deployment. And I couldn't even watch the whole video because it is way, way, my, my life's too emotional anyway. I don't need more emotion. I can only make it so far through it. But, you know, he, he lit, his son recorded his own voice in preparation for if he didn't make it back from deployment, he wanted to give his, his dad a message. And like, wow, what a gift. I mean, what, a, what, a, what an incredible gift, the continual voice and presence of a loved one lost, right? Well, the Spirit keeps Jesus' truth, his voice, his presence with us. And now, now 
the illustration breaks down because Jesus is alive and his connection with us, it's not just memories, but it's a living, breathing, powerful, ongoing relationship that will never fade. So even though we have times of sorrow and they certainly will come following Jesus, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And it certainly is filled with difficult times, but we have the spirit who's our comforter, our counselor. And look, sometimes... And we talk a lot about community here, and community is essential to following Jesus, but there are times of sorrow and disappointment where the only person, really, who you can turn to is God. Where you feel like the only person who you can actually receive comfort from is God. And he comforts, and he draws near. When we draw near, he draws near. And he always will. So we have this wonderful gift of the Spirit's comfort. But also, and that's, this is good, right? We have the Spirit's comfort. But at the same time, this event of the Spirit piercing into the world, coming in and dwelling us, also has an opposite uh, reality for the world. So the Spirit is first sent to comfort, but the Spirit is also sent to convict. Look at verse 8. It says this. And when He comes, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, and judgment. So these will be expounded in the next few verses. We're going to break this down here as we move forward. But I just want you to notice that Jesus says the Spirit of God has a different dynamic with the world than he does with us who are his, those who are called out of the world. He says that the Spirit here doesn't comfort, but convicts. And, and the better idea, if you want to understand what the word convict means here, it might be better to understand that as expose. The Spirit exposes the world, exposes the world's sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because the sense here is not that the Spirit renders the final verdict. God renders the, the Father renders the final verdict. But the Spirit spotlights the dark areas of the world's heart. So look at, at uh, on the screen, John 15, verse 22. Jesus says this just a chapter ago. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So Jesus is saying just by existing and speaking and bearing witness, he exposed the world. He, he gave them no excuse. They've been exposed. Now there's no excuse. And here we're seeing the same idea except through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit now in Jesus' place does the same thing, exposes and leaves the world without excuse. So let's go ahead and dig into these verses 9, 10, and 11. The, the Spirit first exposes or convicts concerning sin because or on the basis of they do not believe in me. So the Spirit first does what as he moves through the world? He exposes sin, the world's sin, but specifically here, it's the sin of unbelief. Now, certainly the Spirit exposes all sorts of sin, all kinds of sin. Every sin you could list, the Spirit exposes it, but what Jesus is saying here is the Spirit exposes the most fundamental, basic sin that's underneath all sin, which is unbelief. Did you know that? That all sin really just comes down to a matter of belief? R.C. Sproul, he says this. It'll be behind me on the screen. He says this. We fundamentally, in our basic root nature, do not believe in God. We may believe in God, but we don't believe God. Because if we believe God, really believe God, why would we ever sin? What is it about sin that entices us to risk 
the displeasure of God and to act against God by choosing it. You say, well, we desire it. And we have such desire for sin that we get caught up in that desire and we choose sin. But why do we desire it? Why does sin have such an appeal to us? Because we believe that if we commit the sin, we will be more happy than if we don't commit the sin. It's that simple, isn't it? When it gets right down to the rock bottom, we sin because we want to. We want to because we're looking for an increase in our happiness, and we figure, if I do it the way God says, I'm going to somehow be cheated or deprived out of personal happiness. Sin, it just comes down to choosing whether or not you believe God knows better. And when we don't choose God's way, when we uh, mistrust God, it's because we think he's going to get it wrong. We think his way is going to leave us with the short end of the stick. And sin has something better for us. It'll make us more happy. And that is how the world operates. And that's what the Spirit comes to expose in the world, that the reason why you reject Jesus at the, bottom of, at the end of the day, at the very bottom of the issue, is because you, world, the world, believes that its happiness is found elsewhere. And so it invests its hopes, it invests its trust in other sources and visions of life that they think will make them happy. So the Spirit moves to the world bearing witness to the claims of Jesus, and the world refuses because it doesn't trust Jesus. And listen, because the world refuses Jesus, the world then remains in guilt, and then the world remains under God's just judgment. This is the tragedy of the Spirit's exposure of sin. If it doesn't lead you to repentance, it ultimately leads you to judgment. And so two verses here, Jude 14-15 says this, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Romans 2, 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. So the Spirit, here's what he does. He convicts, exposes, lays bare all sin so that a person's guilt is totally obvious. So that person can come to the conclusion that their way isn't working, that they're trusting in something else. But if the world does not respond and trust in Jesus' promise and offer of forgiveness, then the day Jesus, Jesus returns and God makes his verdict of the world, it will be on the evidence of the Spirit's conviction all along. So, the Spirit moves through the world, exposing sin, the sin of unbelief. But also, verse 10, the Spirit moves through the world, exposing, this, exposing the world's righteousness. Because, he says, on the basis of this, I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. So, here the Spirit exposes the world's sense of righteousness, or we could say, like, the lack thereof. And he gives the reason, and it's because... He's ascending and he is absent. So this means this. The world's sources of righteousness will be exposed as fragile and faulty because the world does not have a final righteousness or advocate. I mean, so think about this. He said the reason why the world is going to be exposed for faulty righteousness is because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What Jesus is referring to there is I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father and the Father, all he needs to do to, to know whether or not you are in good standing with him, right standing with him, is to look to his right, to acknowledge me, 
my righteousness, my blamelessness, my advocacy, and see whether or not you've put your trust in me. And so, because the world has refused Jesus and chosen other things besides him, put its trust in other things besides him, then it has a faulty, fragmented, empty righteousness because it doesn't have that final advocacy, that final righteousness that's been imputed to it because of trust in him. And so the world, because it's rejected this offer of Jesus' final righteousness and his advocacy for them, then the world moves through life longing for that, longing for that sense of righteousness, longing for somebody to take up their guilt, to plead their case. 1 John 2.1, I'm going to read two verses here. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which, hey, it's going to happen, we're going to sin, Jesus says, or John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Later on in 1 John 3, it says this, for whenever our hearts condemn us. You ever have that happen to you? Your heart prick you? Look what he says. God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. What does God know? He knows his son at his very right hand. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What this is saying is Jesus, he's our innocence. He's our blamelessness. He's our righteousness. We stand before the Father with complete and utter confidence before him, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus' performance. And that creates a stable identity. That creates a durable identity. Followers of Jesus should be able to move through the world victorious because we're not so concerned about proving ourselves to other people because we've already been proven before God by his own son. But the world does not have that, that, that experience. The world has a stricken conscience constantly. And so what happens? What does the world do? The world tries to justify itself with every moment of its existence. Have you seen that old movie, Chariots of Fire? I don't know if you guys have. It's really old. Um, there's this line in there. It's the story of, uh, of, uh, of an Olympic runner who's a Christian, and he, I'm not going to explain the whole thing. Anyway, the point is his rival, his rival, okay? His rival, uh, a sprinter, says a line. He says this, when the gun goes off, I have 100 meters to justify my existence. That's the kind of mindset, that's the kind of mantra that somebody lives by who doesn't have that durable, stable identity, who doesn't feel like no matter what they do, good or bad, they're going to be okay because they have been approved by somebody more powerful and worthy than themselves. And so they live life just trying to seize and grab any shred of approval and confidence from other people. That's a life of burnout. That's a life of insanity. And so the world thinks I am what I achieve. I must establish myself. And the world competes with one another in order to get this sense of righteousness. And the Spirit exposes that, that faulty, fragile righteousness. But also the Spirit exposes what else? Judgment. Verse 11, the Spirit exposes, convicts concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the world is exposed to have faulty judgment as well. Misleading, error-filled judgment as well. Why? He says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what's the relationship between these two phrases? Why would the world be exposed to have bad judgment on the basis of the devil being judged? And it's because of this. The world 
and its system is under the power of the evil one. And we know the evil one is who? The father of lies. And so the world's system of belief, it, it, the, uh, the way it, its framework for life, it's, it's never going to be quite right. It's always going to have holes and weaknesses in it, inconsistencies in it, because it's under the power of the father of lies. The world operates according to presumptions that are distorted truths, half-truths, lies. So back in John chapter 7, it'll be on the screen. Jesus, this is a good cross-reference for this idea. Jesus, he heals a man on the Sabbath, incredible miracle, meant to point people to him and saying, hey, believe in me, I am the Sabbath. But everyone goes nuts, and not in a good way. And Jesus says this in chapter 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is saying that no one can make the right judgment, see things for what they really are, and make the right calculated decision if you operate according to the wrong presumptions. Their presumptions was, you don't heal man on the Sabbath. (laughs) And because of that presumption, they couldn't see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't see Jesus for what he was up to and what he was doing, and they missed it completely, all because they had wrong presumptions, poor judgment. So what's the world's uh, wrong presumptions? What's the world's faulty judgments? The world's judgment is elevate self. The way of Jesus, though, that the Spirit bears witness to is die to self. The world's judgment is prove yourself. Jesus says humble yourself. The world's judgment says trust yourself. Jesus says trust me. (laughs) The world says, commit to nothing. Jesus says, commit to me completely. The world says, never be weak. Jesus says, live in weakness. I am strong. And so everything that the world believes and holds dear is is incompatible with the way of Jesus. And it will always short-circuit somebody in their pursuit of Jesus because Jesus, at the end of the day, is going to be offensive to their presumptions. So I just want to take a moment to challenge your presumptions in here. If you're here and you're considering Jesus on the fence about Jesus, you're not sure you made up your mind about him, you know, I believe that good preaching and that good evangelism questions people's answers and answers people's questions. And so I want you to examine yourself, and Jesus wants you to examine yourself, your presumptions, and see if your judgment is off. See if your judgments don't really make sense with what you see as self-evident. So here's my first question. Do you actually follow through on your presumptions? Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, I love this part of his book. He says this, it'll be behind me. Russian philosopher Vladimir Solyovov sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Man descended from apes, so let's love one another. The second clause does not follow from the first. If it, was a nat- if, it was na- if it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why aren't people allowed to do it now? Given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the, cl- than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs, in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in a liberal humanism, simply do not fit with one another. 
Each set of beliefs is evidence against the other. Many would call this a deeply incoherent view of the world. What Keller's saying is if you actually follow through on your presumptions, that you wouldn't care about loving one another. You would never have a reason to be morally outraged when you see heinous things happen to other people in the world, yet you are. No matter how um, materialistic you are, you will always feel morally outraged. You will always have moral opinions about what's right and wrong and loving and hateful. But that doesn't make sense, does it? And so maybe the problem is not what's obviously self-evident. You can't turn that switch off. That's just embedded in you. Maybe the the problem is not what's self-evident. Maybe the, the problem is your presumptions. Because there's a deep incoherence in your way of life. What you believe does not match up with what is obviously true. Now, maybe you're not here as like a physical materialist, someone who doesn't believe in God or spiritual things at all whatsoever. You're probably here uh, believing in God, just generally speaking, like he's this orb of love that all religions, religions stem from. But listen, if all religions are the same, why are you morally outraged when you see religious communities commit heinous acts? That wouldn't make any sense if it's all the same. And you might dig deeper, dig your heels in and say, no, those, those things are just distortions of the truth, just distortions of the grand cosmic truth that we're out of touch with and we don't know. Well, then my question for you is who gets to decide what is true then? Who gets to decide what is that grand cosmic truth that everything has to agree with and align with, that things are just a distortion of? You? See, what's going to happen then is you're going to formulate a religion that always agrees with you, never contradicts you, never confounds you, never challenges you, and never asks you to take any steps of faith in life at all whatsoever. You're going to build for yourself a very safe, self-insulated life. You know, you know, you know that you have something to live for if you have something to die for. And when it's up to us, we'll never, we'll never create a way of life that gives us something to, to die for, but just something to sort of halfway live for. So again, maybe the problem isn't what's obvious in your human living and what's self-evident. Maybe the problem is your presumptions. They're misleading you. In Luke 7, 35, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They can't accept John the Baptist. They have problems with John the Baptist. They can't accept him. He's too radical. And he says this line. It's one of my favorite lines from Jesus. He says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Meaning, you know what's wise. You know what's right based on what it produces. And if your wisdom, your presumptions, produce a life of incoherence, that things just don't add up, things that what is obviously self-evident does not match your foundations, then you should call into question if that's really wise. And then conversely, what does Jesus' wisdom produce? Wisdom is justified by her children. What does Jesus' wisdom produce? Again, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not always easy, but it is a life that's reasonable. It is a life that's worthwhile. It's a life that gives you something to actually die for. So the Spirit's work in the world is to expose the world's house of cards. His work is to show that the, world's, that the world sins by trusting in other sources of happiness, that those sources don't alleviate guilt. The world's righteousness is not durable because it's without advocacy. 
And the world's judgments are incoherent because they're skewed with lies. That's what the Spirit does as he moves out in the world and bears witness to Jesus. Now, the question I hope you have to yourself at this moment is, okay, what's the mechanism that the Spirit uses to expose these things, to convict the world? And this is why it's really important to like read your Bible and do it the right way, because you have to ask yourself, what's the immediate context to this passage? What's come directly before this, the teaching directly before this? Jesus has been drilling home the point, two things. Christians, Christian community, love one another radically to the point where it's otherworldly and absurd and endure the opposition of the world really well and don't feel sorry for yourself, don't pity yourself, trust in Jesus all along. And I'm not spending much time on this point, but this is kind of like, the, like a really important point here. The Spirit bears witness through you and us in our life together and how we love one another and how we hold up underneath the world's opposition without complaining and feeling sorry for ourselves. Like our life together and our resilience through the world is how the Spirit exposes to the world that, hey, everything you believe in our building your life on is faulty. And here's what happens, okay? Sometimes, <laughs> every now and then, and at different seasons in the world's life, it, it, it's more accelerated than, than other times, but at times, there are people whose hearts are just, they're cut to the heart. And everything is exposed. And they get so fed up with life not making sense, so fed up with their sin their judgment, their righteousness, none of it's working so fed up that it reaches a tipping point where they say, okay, I repent and I believe in the good news, the kingdom of Jesus, this life that's he's, that he's inviting me into. I may not like everything that you say. <laughs> I may not agree with you. Your way of life might be strange to me, but you have something I don't have. That can happen. That will happen. So as we read verse 9, 10, and 11, that the Spirit exposes all these things in the world it is a negative idea. He does convict and expose, but it's not necessarily final because the Spirit is also moving through the world, drawing people to himself, bringing people to him through you, through us. And so I just have three questions for your consideration today. First, we've learned that the Spirit is sent to comfort and so my question to you today is, are you quenching the Spirit by not receiving his comfort? Are you, follower of Jesus, turning to other sources to find refuge? Turning to other sources as a crutch? Or are you collapsing on Jesus through the Spirit, taking hold of his promises, letting his, yielding yourself to his truth, letting his word wash over you, wash over your heart, and heal your wounds and heal your sorrows? You know, we can numb our pain with Netflix and Instagram. We can numb our pain by talking to other people and by, by desensitizing ourselves and distracting ourselves. But the pain, the sorrow, that's where you meet with God. And that's where it becomes real. So my first question to you, Christian, who's meant to be comforted by the Spirit is, are you quenching the Spirit in your life by not receiving His comfort and stepping into His comfort? My second question is here, you, you hear who, who haven't made up your mind about Jesus. You're on the fence about Jesus. Are you quenching the Spirit by hardening your heart to his conviction? 
by hardening your heart to his logic, by hardening your heart to his offer of forgiveness. Look, it's very self-evident that God is real. And the way of Jesus leads to human flourishing. And everything in you cries out for that and longs for that, but your presumptions don't make sense with it. And so perhaps you should call into question not what you feel, but what your presumptions are. Third, church, citizens' church, maybe we're quenching the Spirit by not loving one another and by not enduring opposition in the world well. Maybe we're quenching the Spirit by not being committed to this vision for life that Jesus is describing here in these pages, a community of radical love and radical perseverance. Everyone in here today must respond. You know, I mentioned Mark chapter 1 earlier. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word uh, for time, time is fulfilled, it's kairos. And kairos in the Greek and used in all sorts of literature, it always means this moment in time that's hanging, this moment that's pregnant with possibility. Right now is one of those moments. We all must respond today to what we're hearing. Are we going to continue on quenching the Spirit, or are we going to yield ourselves to the Spirit as He moves out into the world and into our hearts? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are sorry. (laughs) We ask for forgiveness we readily receive the forgiveness you have for us for the times that we have quenched the Spirit, when we have not been comforted by Him when we should be, when we have not loved others and endured as we should. And Lord, I pray that if, if there's anyone here today who is considering you, Lord, I pray that you would cut them to the heart now by the Spirit, that He would expose the faulty contradictions and difficulties in their mind and heart, and that you would draw them to yourself now, even today. Lord, we want to be a community that is shaped and formed by the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you, submit ourselves to you, and ask that you have your way with us. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.